This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. In the summer of 2002, Timothy Beale and his family set out in a motorhome, christened Homerome by his son, to discover what inspires people to build roadside religious attractions like the Bible theme park in Orlando, or the world's largest Ten Commandments, or Richard Green's life-size Noah's Ark along Interstate 68. Throughout each visit, Beale examines the nature of American faith by exploring what these attractions mean to people who created them and to the people who visit them. He is a religious professor. He's also a quote-unquote minister's wife. Mr. Beale shows how these roadside attractions are deeply personal sacred spaces for their creators and their visitors. He travels to Holy Land, USA in Bedford County, Virginia, a recreation of both the land between Israel and Palestine as well as physical manifestations of the gospel story of the Protestant Christian Bible, the Cross Garden in Prattville, Alabama, a religious stream of consciousness, and Golgotha Fun Park, biblically-themed miniature golf course. It just sounds like way so much fun. Uh, we've got with us, uh, by way of telephone, uh, Timothy Beale. He is a Florence Harkness Professor of Religion and Director of the Baker Nord Center for the Humanities at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio. His books include Religion and Its Monsters and The Book of Hiding, and his essays have appeared in The Chronicle of Higher Education, The Cleveland Plain Dealer, and The Washington Post. So, Timothy Beale, welcome to Common Threads. Thank you. It's, it's great to have this chance to talk with you, Fred. So, Timothy, I, I've got to ask, what was the, the impetus for this? What was the motivation uh, was this something that accidentally happened? Uh, uh, did you just find yourself rolling down the road and, and think, oh, now that's a curious thing. I'll, I'll write a book on it. <laughs> <laughs> something, something, something like that, really. I, I, I guess you could say the inspiration for this, what I like to call Blue Highway's approach to discovering religion in America, uh, came to me, to us really, to Clover and me, uh, while we were on a, another family road trip. We were, uh, we were on our way back from Washington, D.C. Uh, to Shaker Heights, Ohio, a suburb of Cleveland where we live, and driving along Interstate 68 through northern Maryland, northwestern Maryland in the Cumberland Mountain area. And as we crested a hill just outside of the town of Frostburg, Maryland, we saw this giant brownish-red steel girder structure uh, sitting there on the top of the hill, rusting away and languishing in the grass. And, uh, it, you know, the first impression was that this was some sort of business uh, complex that, uh, that was being built or a, or a parking garage or something like that. But as we drove past, we saw a big blue sign, looked like a highway sign, and it said, Noah's Ark being rebuilt here. And uh, I guess you could say Clover and I, as we, as we whizzed by at that particular moment, were maybe as uneasy as we were curious. Um, so we drove by then, but we kept thinking about that Noah's Ark and, and the Noah uh, behind it. And I guess you could say the, 
the the what uh, led to more profound questions, such as who and why. And by the time we got home, uh, we started to imagine a kind of family road trip where we might visit places like this and uh, and and learn about the places, but especially learn about the people behind them and the stories behind the places. And so that's that's really where the inspiration came from. That first. Uh, that, that Noah we met in, in Maryland. Uh, by the way, when I introduced you, I neglected to give the full title of the book that you've written. It's, it's called Roadside Religion in Search of the Sacred, the Strange, and the Substance of Faith. Now, you refer to yourself as a minister's wife. Uh, uh, <laughs> tell us a little bit about that. Well, I'm, I'm married to a Presbyterian minister, uh, Clover Reuter Beal. She's a minister in the Presbyterian Church USA, which is one of the main uh, 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 traditions of uh, Presbyterianism in the United States, uh, more identified with the liberal tradition maybe than some of the other Presbyterian denominations. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, uh, minister's husband uh, it would be another way of putting it, but yeah, I, I, in some ways I think of myself as a as a minister's wife, I don't play the organ and I don't direct the choir, but I do teach Sunday school sometimes uh, and host dinners at our house for parishioners. <laughs> now, in in your book, it, uh, in the introduction, you talk about your own spirituality, mm-hmm. and, and even though you're involved in your wife's church to some degree, mm-hmm. you don't quite fit the mold of an official card-carrying Presbyterian. Am I correct there? <laughs> um, that's probably correct. Uh, I don't know how many Presbyterians do <laughs> fit that mold, but um, uh, yeah, I, Clover and I actually went to seminary together, and I decided while there that I did not want to be ordained. Um, I I like I like being a member of the community without needing to, you know, represent it in some way, and and I like having a, a bit of a counter voice or a, a more marginal identity within within the tradition. Uh, both Clover and I grew up in more conservative evangelical Christian circles than, than we're in now. Um, uh, that's certainly our background, but neither of us really identify with, with those traditions now. Um, this trip, in fact, put us back into relationship with, with some of those uh, with some of those traditions in some ways. Uh, we found that while we were visiting these places, some of them anyway, that uh, in order to really understand them, it was a matter, you know, we really had to tap into, I found I had to tap into my own conservative evangelical background in a way that was a little more sympathetic um, than I usually do. I, I was going to say that it definitely does come through, and mm-hmm. y- you, you speak or you write from a certain expertise that not everyone would have, and I think that you you create a very fine balance here. Uh, Thank you. Admittedly, I mean, it says uh, in the subtitle, the sacred and the strange. You give people, uh, you could have given people an awful lot to laugh at. Right. And some of this is just gall darn funny. (laughs) It just is. Mm -hmm. But you treat it with, with a respect that's really quite admirable, considering where you are spiritually mm. you know thank you very much for for saying that i mean that really was my goal um i as a as a scholar of religion 
um, in a way that's always the goal is to to understand and and understanding is not about laughing at or making fun of or or objectifying it's about coming to a place where you can see how something could be true for someone how how, how something could make sense according to a certain context according to a certain story it's all about trying to get to know the the story behind the place but i appreciate that very much it, uh, it, it was a challenge for me given my background and and uh, the fact that I don't really identify with that background um, personally anymore, um, there was a there was a challenge to it, and, and you're right. It's it's. I mean, gosh, I mean, it's it's kind of funny stuff, and that was maybe what initially drew me to a place like Golgotha Fun Park or the world's largest Ten Commandments. But um, it would have been a disaster, I think, had had I gone down that road of, of uh, you know laughing at and sure. condescending. I mean, that's that's something that's always a bit of a risk, um, uh, but uh, certainly uh, one that we need to be, one needs to be very self-reflective and self-critical about, you know, what, why am I doing this? Let and, me ask you, when, when you're at a place, for instance, when you're in the Deep South or in mm-hmm. very rural communities, mm-hmm. does this stuff kind of seem natural? Does it seem less outrageous than... If it all of a sudden plopped, uh, 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 sprouted up in the, in the middle of Shaker Heights, <laughs> well, yeah, um, then Shaker Heights, yes. <laughs> but <laughs> it doesn't seem. Um, I mean, a motorhome popping up in Shaker Heights might seem <laughs> sure. <laughs> really, unusual. I've never been I've to never Shaker, Heights, but, Shaker but, Heights, but 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 I I, I know <laughs> I, I've got friends who are from the Cleveland uh-huh. area. Sure. Yeah, no, uh, my kids. I don't think they they really had ever heard of motorhomes before. They were just enamored of the idea of a motorhome. It just was like it was a dream machine. They want one now? Uh, no. Oh. It, it seemed like that before the trip. We've, I think after a few weeks in it, um, I'm not sure I'll ever get them in another <laughs> motorhome. It, it's pretty tight space after a while. But, right. but, but we did develop some appreciation for motorhome culture in the process as well. But back to your question, um, you know, Sometimes these places did feel natural and, you know, really organic to, in relation to the culture uh, around them and in relation to, which is more, um, you know, oftentimes more Christian-oriented, and also to the, just the natural environment, the geography, places like uh, Holy Land USA, which um, is this 250-acre one to one hundred scale reproduction of uh, the land of Palestine during the time of Jesus, but it's nestled there in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia, and it it has a it feels very much a part of that natural environment, um, even though it's it's sort of laid over it, um, and and uh, you know places like Paradise Gardens in Somerville, Georgia, which is this neighborhood block of folk art, outsider art, done by the Reverend Howard Finster uh, between 1976 and when he died in 2001, um, again, feels very uh, much integrated into the environment and into the neighborhood there. Um, So those, you know, feel like they, they feel like they're a part of the place. Others, on the other hand, 
didn't. Um, they felt much more like impositions. If you if you think, uh, well, for example, the world's largest Ten Commandments in uh, Murphy, North Carolina, you know, laid out in giant concrete letters on this Moan Hill, uh, this this giant hillside in the middle of uh, the forest, um, concrete everywhere. It feels like an imposition, or you know, sort of the Ten Commandments being inscribed on the land in a way, um, not very organically related to it. And and Holy Land experience in Orlando, Florida, feels very much that way as well. A kind of a Disney World, Holy Land Disney World, in some sense, that is uh, laid out there down the, right down the right down Interstate Four from uh, Universal Studios and Disney World and all those places. So you know, it really depends. Sure. You know, when I I started reading this, it it occurred to me that wait a minute, these people who are fundamentalist evangelical Christians. They are creating sites of pilgrimage. They're creating yeah. sacred space. And right. it, it occurred to me, wait a minute, Protestants don't believe in sacred space. <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. And then lo and behold, I turn a couple of pages, and you do address this. Right. Uh, how does this contradiction uh, uh, work itself out for them? You know, that's a really good question. I mean, I think most contradictions, you know, in a way, they don't have to work themselves out <laughs> within a within a religious life or within the, the life of a faith community, so long as they're not brought to anyone's attention. So, as you say, um, <laughs> on the one hand, I think this is very normal for, for, you know, most religious communities, most religious traditions, most religious people. You know, not everything does all fit together into one integrated whole, um, and that's okay from day to day on the ground. But you're right that within Protestantism, you know, uh, pilgrimage was really uh, lifted up as, uh, early on in the Reformation, lifted up as one of the things that really showed how uh, far wrong the Catholic Church had gone. Calvin writes a lot about pilgrimage, and very critically, as an, uh, you know, an example of, of the corruption of of, uh, of the church and uh, and and sees it as a you know all of these material aspects these material aesthetics of religion and so forth as you know what what Protestantism needs to get away from and that runs through a lot of uh, Protestant religious tradition especially in the more conservative ends of it which want to focus more on the theology and the ideas and getting getting the words right and getting the beliefs right and focus less on what I like to call the material aesthetics, you know, the embodied practices of religion. And yet here you are at a place like Holy Land USA, and uh, basically what you're doing is you're going on a pilgrimage. You are starting in Bethlehem and working your way up, in the uh, riding on these flatbed trailers behind a truck, you know, working your way up this trail up to the Sea of Galilee, so you start where Jesus is born, and then you're up there in the north where he began his ministry and gathered disciples, and then you uh, move down the valley again toward Jerusalem, and it culminates there at Calvary and the empty tomb. What you have is a is very much a pilgrimage. It's a traversing of the biblical story, the gospel story, that is also a traversing of the space uh, of, of that particular, the land of the Bible, if you will. So it's a kind of spatial 
form of biblical narrative, which many traditional pilgrimages are. Um, so it's sort of finding its way back into Protestantism in, in a place like this. You might even think of it as something like the return of the repressed. And I would imagine that uh, a good many of the people who take trips down to Holy Land are never really going to go to the Holy Land. No, that's for sure. Um, in fact, Bob Johnson, the man who created the uh, Holy Land USA in, uh, in Virginia, in Bedford, Virginia, he, he had been to Israel and had had a very profound experience there. He really believed very deeply that Christians needed to um, have some kind of experience or some sense of connection to the land of Israel. And uh, he, he knew that, you know, most of the local residents of Bedford County, Virginia, were not going to have the wherewithal to, get a, to buy a ticket to Tel Aviv, right? So um, his interest was in creating a kind of virtual experience of the Holy Land for people who otherwise would not be able to have that, uh, have that experience, couldn't afford to. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads here on WGVU Radio. I'm Fred Stella, and we're speaking today with Timothy Beale about his book, Roadside Religion, In Search of the Sacred, the Strange, and the Substance of Faith. It reminds me, uh, every year we at Interfaith Dialogue Association uh, put on a, um, a conference, mm-hmm. and we try to think of themes that will resonate with people from various various traditions, and uh-huh. last year we it was on sacred movement. Uh-huh. And, you know, that could include dance, it could, could include uh, uh, various forms of physical worship, etc., yoga we used. Yeah. And uh, one, of the, one of the people who was helping us was a Christian scientist, mm-hmm. and she says, we, we've got no sacred movement, nothing. And, and we said, well, somebody mentioned, well, what about people go on pilgrimage to Mary Baker Eddie Eddie's house right in Boston and we were thinking pilgrimage might also be a way of talking about sacred movement well she yeah. said and she said yes many Christian scientists do visit Mary Baker Eddie's home right but they would never refer to it as a pilgrimage <laughs> right well and I'm, I'm sure I'm, I'm assuming that these people here if you used that word th- they might the, the, the red flags might go up right right yeah, yeah, and you of course have to be careful then, uh, and I, you know, I need to be careful when I'm writing about uh, uh, Holy Land USA and suggesting that it's something like pilgrimage. You know, not to 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 uh, word that in such a way as it's as it so that it sounds like a an accusation or something or a, you know, look, uh, you say you're against this, and but but in fact you're not, and sometimes I think. I mean, this is an interesting question for interfaith dialogue. What alternative language can we find that doesn't put, for example, a Christian scientist off in, in thinking about visits to uh, Mary Baker Eddy's house as, a, as some kind of religious experience or act of, uh, uh, or, or act of devotion, you know? Sure. Well, I think that one of the main... Uh, problems with the word pilgrimage for a lot of people in in Christianity and perhaps others as well the idea that you're gaining some sort of spiritual merit that you right. know salvation or a higher place in yes. in the kingdom something like that yes 
and and I would imagine that prior to the Reformation, that was certainly encouraged. Absolutely, and that and that is uh, at the core of Calvin's criticisms of pilgrimage as well. Certainly, and and there is a difference um, when you look at. Uh, uh, the kind of experience that is uh, is being uh, that, that that happens there at a place like Holy Land USA, I, there's certainly no interest in some kind of merit uh, being won. But I think it's about hosting religious experience. It's about creating a space where uh, one can have uh, a more profound religious experience of the, the, in this case, of the biblical narrative, of the gospel narrative. Mm-hmm. So hosting is really what it's about more than um, uh, any kind of language of earning. Sure, sure. Uh, in your book, you, you quote uh, the philosopher uh, Bataille. Uh, yeah, Bataille, uh, uh-huh. Excuse me. And uh, he, he says that you say that uh, he described the sacred as that which is experienced as radical otherness representing a realm, whether it's real or imaginary, of animal intimacy that threatens to annihilate the social and symbolic order in a holy conflagration. Mm-hmm. As such, it is both alluring and terrifying. Okay. What does that mean? <laughs> Talk to me. I thought about, I, I asked myself, I, I, I love uh, Bataille's philosophy and his theory of religion, but I thought, do I really want to include that in this book? Well, I you got my for... attention. <laughs> Good. Well, go read some Bataille. <laughs> it's, worth, it's worth the attention. Um, uh, I, was, I was looking for a way in that section, because in that section of the book I'm talking about, you know, the fact that, that these, uh, that the, 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 the people behind the different places I visit are interested in in some sense, creating sacred space, that is, creating a space that can host an experience of the sacred, um, some kind of uh, encounter with uh, uh, the transcendent or, or with, with the holy other. And I wanted, and I was asking, well, what is the sacred? And there are so many different, you know, theories of the sacred among scholars of religion. I thought I would throw a few out there and uh, just to give a sense that there is a range of, of possibilities when we're talking, you know, what do we mean by the sacred? Um, and Bataille was <laughs> the more radical um, example I wanted to include. But for Bataille, um, he saw, uh, uh, he talked about the order of things and the order of intimacy. And the order of things is our everyday world. It's the world of tools and language and social uh, organization and hierarchies. It's the world we live in. But he also talked about how, you know, there is also that which is not part of that world, part of our experience. And, and he described it, I think, as much as anything, metaphorically in terms of animality, that is to say, the world of, 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 uh, of the natural, of the non-social, of the of the animal and and uh, an order of intimacy um, in which all of the things that sort of organize and and and, and uh, uh, hierarchize our everyday society are not operative. And uh, this may be a kind of imaginary world, but uh, for Bataille, he felt that 
that people's experiences, people's experience of the sacred, that the religious person's experience of the sacred was in some sense an expression of a longing for that other world, for radical otherness that is in some sense beyond all of our structures and hierarchies and so forth. So uh, I don't know if that helps much. But just uh, clarify animal intimacy. for I mean, it's kind of a really cool term. I it like is. it, but... but He says that he, one of his, his ways of describing this is that in, that in this realm of animal intimacy or animality or intimacy, he uses different terms, um, it is the realm of, uh, of eating and being eaten. There is this... Uh, he says that animals... Uh, live in the world like, exist in the world like water in water. That is to say, there is not a sense of self, a self-consciousness over against the world around them as an objectified um, world. And this is where he thinks tools and so forth are, are key to keep in mind, because the development of tools is, is related to instrumentality and using the world around you. So he sees that, you know, this, this lack of self-consciousness, this experience of, uh, the, the, and it may be the way we imagine animals <laughs> being in the world, but that they are in the world like water in water. There's a continuity and a lack of self-consciousness there. And that we have some longing for that, some longing to be, um, to be, to, to lose ourselves in something greater than us, in something bigger, in that, in that, uh, that larger water. And then there's one other thing I'd like to uh, talk about before we end this particular program. Sure. Something you tell your students, you say the study of religion is fundamentally about making the strange familiar and the familiar strange. Yes. Comment on that, if you would. Absolutely. Um, well, uh, you know, it's about when we're studying religions, most of the time we are, uh, it's about encountering religious ideas, religious practices, religious institutions that appear to us at first as uh, strange. They are unfamiliar. They're other. They're, they're not what we know. Um, and the goal as a student, as a scholar of religion is, to come to a place where we can we can see how those ideas, practices, institutions could be true, how they make sense according to a certain story within a certain context. Um, and that's what understanding is about. I think I mentioned that earlier. But So it's about encountering something that uh, strikes us initially as strange or other and coming to a place where we can see how it could be true, how it makes sense. That's the strange becoming familiar. Um, at the same time, I think when we do that as scholars and students of religion, we, uh, we begin to estrange ourselves in some sense from our own religious ideas and practices and institutions. That is to say, you start to realize, oh, these, these, these religious practices and so on that initially seemed strange are actually a lot like mine. Or when I look at my own religious practices, um, with different eyes, I, I, I start to realize how absolutely strange they are. I find, as a professor of religion, that I often am using my own religious life, my own practices, you know, from my church life and so forth, as data, um, for, <laughs> as, as examples of different religious phenomena. And that is a kind of 
um, there's a, there's a certain kind of uh, alienation from one's own from one's own religion that happens when you do that. I understand, uh, Timothy. We're out of town. Uh, out of town. Well, yeah, that too. You're out of town. <laughs> I'm out of town. But we're out of time <laughs> for this particular segment of uh, Common Threads. But we want to have you back next week, and we'll continue this conversation. Great. I'm Fred Stella. You've been listening to our conversation with Tim Beale, the author of Roadside Religion, In Search of the Sacred, the Strange, and the Substance of Faith. And uh, it is published by Beacon Press. And please join us again next week when we continue this conversation here on WGVU. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Think about this. Think about the wonderful shrines and uh, religious places of worship in Europe. You have Lourdes, you have the Vatican, St. Peter's, beautiful monuments. Uh, These are places people from every religion come to visit, not only for their holiness, but because they are stunning pieces of art. Now, you think about what we have in America. Holy Land USA, the reproduction of Noah's Ark, and I could go further. As a matter of fact, we will go further. There's a new book out called Roadside Religion, In Search of the Sacred, the Strange, and the Substance of Faith. It's written by Timothy Beale, and he took a roadside trip, and he documented so much of what is going on in the rural parts of the United States in terms of these very interesting attractions. We spoke with him last week, and we're having him on again this week. Uh, Tim Beale is a Florence Harkness Professor of Religion and Director of the Baker Nord Center of the Humanities at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland. His books include Religion and Its Monsters and the Book of Hiding, and his essays have appeared in the Chronicle of Higher Education, the Cleveland Plain Dealer, and the Washington Post. So once again, we welcome to Common Threads, Tim Beale. Hi, Tim. Hi, Fred. Thanks for having me back. 
So let me ask you this. You just heard my little introduction. How do you think it would be received if we brought people from, let's say, oh, France and took them on your little roadside trip? How might yeah. <laughs> they, they react to, to this? I, I, that's, a, that's a very rhetorical question. I'm no, not... no, it's a, it's a great question. Actually, it's, it, it, you might find the answer, my answer, surprising. A, a few people have given my book to friends um, who live in France, and, uh, and they're fascinated with it, and uh, at least the ones I've heard about, I suppose no, they wouldn't tell me if they... <laughs> were appalled by it but um uh in fact i heard from one couple who says that this other couple who live in southern france are going to uh, next time they come to the states are going to make sure they build visits to a couple of these places into their their uh their time in the states so a certain fascination with it i think in some ways maybe for um someone uh not living in america they might see these kinds of places as as really signature <laughs> religious landmarks in uh, in the American religious landscape whether or not they are what do we have in America you know your book you you talk about as is it says in the title the strange the sacred and the strange mm-hmm. do we have anything in the United States that you would you would pull somebody from Europe over here and say no 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 Look at this. Now, this is amazing. Where, where would you take them? You mean in terms of... Uh, not, being, not being eccentric, but, oh, okay. but, but, but truly historical, spiritual places right, here right. in the United States. Well, I mean, you know, uh, you might think of the National Cathedral in, in D.C. Um, I think, in fact, some of the, uh, some of the, the grottos even, which are smaller scale and, and local, but are quite extravagant. There's one up in the area near um, one of the places I visited, Ave Maria Grotto, that is just stunning. Um, but I think, you know, you're right in another sense in that, you know, they, they might see those and think, well, yeah, those are, those are kind of like what we have that were built 500 years earlier. Mm-hmm. You know, they really are uh, modeled on European religious uh, sacred places. Very true. You know, one of the things I, I enjoy about your book is, uh, above and beyond you talking about where you've, where you've visited and describing in detail uh, some of these uh, very interesting uh, uh, shrines, if, mm-hmm. for lack of a better word right now, mm-hmm. Uh, but you also talk a lot about religious philosophy, mm. and and I appreciate that. And one of the things that uh, caught my eye is you say that one of the motivations for for creating some of these things is a is a type of nostalgia, mm-hmm. and and then you you uh, define it from the Greek uh, uh, meaning returning home plus pain. Yeah. Uh, how do you how does how does pain fit in with nostalgia? Yeah, uh, well, I think it's it's um, it's pain in the sense of aching. Um, the, the I think the, the sort of root meaning of nostalgia, if you take it apart, uh, it's the same as homesickness. That is, um, I mean, it's literally homesickness. It's aching for home, and I think that 
when you think about nostalgia in relation to American religion and some of the places that I visited and wrote about in the book, um, these are expressions of, of religious nostalgia in the sense that they uh, express a deep longing, an, an, an aching <laughs> desire, if you will, to, um, to re-inhabit uh, uh, their, their religious uh, traditions, their mythological origins, to, uh, to live into their sacred stories, um, to make them real, uh, to, to inhabit them. And so there's a sense in which, you know, for example, the biblical narrative for some religious people um, is a kind of homeland, um, and the Holy Land, uh, the land of Israel, for example, um, isn't only sacred because it's the, the you know the place where uh, the, where this religion has its roots, but it's also sacred in that it is the biblical the the land of the biblical narrative, and so there is this kind of nostalgic longing to live into our sacred stories to um, to to make them more real than than the everyday reality that surrounds us makes sense mm. you know we really haven't gotten into much about the very specific places that you've been and I want to spend this program doing some of that great let's start with Prattville sure this I, I love this sign you will die hell is hot 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 <laughs> and and god said the world coming to a end rich man in hell repent and then in hell from sex sex <laughs> yes and that sounds like rap lyrics actually <laughs> yeah it kind of does and that's just the uh the tip of the fire and brimstone or iceberg <laughs> at uh, uh uh cross garden in pradville that is uh Cross Garden is, I guess I would describe it as an 11-acre collage, like a visual cacophony of um, signs and crosses and old appliances and pieces of scrap wood uh, towering over you from bluffs on either side of the road and in every nook and cranny all over. And all of these objects bear... Uh, messages, mostly messages of uh, of hell and damnation, as you just read. Um, one of my favorite little uh, installations, if you will, at Cross Garden is a series of uh, uh, housings from air conditioning window units that run up the driveway toward the house, and on them are these messages with uh, refrigeration themes, such as no ice water in hell, <laughs> fire hot. Um, uh, but this is the work of a, uh, of a man and his wife. Um, the man's name, he died about a year and a half ago. His name is Bill Rice, and, and his wife's name is Marzell. Bill felt called back in the 1970s, in the mid-1970s, to initially to put up one little cross in his house, and then to put a few more up in his front yard, and then from there, well, you can you can see where it uh, where it got to. <laughs> um, most recently, thousands of, of crosses and signs and pieces of uh, of old uh, appliances and so so forth all over the place. It's eleven acres. Um, it's really a sort of overwhelming 
experience to go there. You feel enveloped by it, really taken in by it. You don't really behold it like an object. You are sort of swallowed up <laughs> and enveloped in it. It's, it's quite overwhelming. And, and the old appliances, uh, uh, I mean, other than the air conditioning units, that, that makes a little sense because he's, I'm assuming he's saying he, there's no air conditioning where you're going if you don't <laughs> right. follow the sta- straight right. and narrow. Right. What about the other stuff? Does it, does it, is it there for a purpose or he just well, didn't know where a, to put it? <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, there's a, it, the, some of it has a little thematic connection to the message that it's bearing, such as that there are some washing machines lined up and, and uh, they're top loaders and there are crosses sticking up out of the top of, uh, of these washing machines out, out of the open top loading doors of the, wa- of the laundry machines and I guess you know maybe you could go with like washed in the blood or, <laughs> or mm. something on those there's nothing mm-hmm. explicitly making that thematic connection but I think for the most part this is, this is found stuff that he works with um, to, to create these these uh, these collages of messages. And, um, you know, Bill Rice actually described himself as something like a bird. And he said, you know, a bird who is making a nest. And the bird goes and finds a twig here and brings it back and then goes back out and finds a, you know, a bread tie here or a little piece of plastic or, or a cigarette butt or whatever and keeps bringing these things back and building this nest. And he said that's kind of like what what he's doing. He's kind of like a bird, going and, and finding pieces and bringing them back. It, in fact, it struck me that, I mean, on the one hand, your feeling when you're there, especially at first, is that this place is just all about hellfire and judgment and damnation. You know, you will die. You're going to hell is the basic message here, um, at least the, the basic overt message. But... Um, in getting to know Bill and listening to his story and, and then thinking about this metaphor of the nest and the bird, it began to occur to me that in some sense this place, this cross-garden place, was a kind of a nest, kind of a shelter for, for him and for Marzell, that it was a, a safe place um, amid the storm of the world, I guess you might say. Uh, and we might even think about these these various um, objects as something like talismans in that in that respect, you know, warding off evil or something along those lines, or warding off catastrophe. And and these these creations of his, uh, this is this is from uh, NEA funding. Am I correct? <laughs> you know, I don't think so, but I wouldn't be surprised if um, <laughs> he had for sale signs up when I was there. You know, you could buy this whole place for two million dollars because he had heard that. Um, and he's figured out that there are scholars out there who study people like him and their their creations. In fact, they study him and they study Howard Finster, another I, I uh, talk about in the book, um, as examples of outsider art, um, folk art uh, by untrained um, artists who are working outside the mainstreams of culture. I don't think he's gotten an NEA grant, but I would not be at all surprised if someone who's studied him and written about him has gotten an NEA grant. I would be happy to get an NEA grant to go back. (laughs) If you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads here on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella, and my guest today is Tim Beal. 
He is a professor at Case Western Reserve University in Ohio, and the name of the book he's written is Roadside Religion, In Search of the Sacred, the Strange, and the Substance of Faith. Uh, last week, we spoke, um, oh, it came up in conversation here and there, but we really didn't get into the nitty-gritty uh, of, uh, of uh, the Holy, uh, not Holy City, what, what is it, uh, in Orlando? Uh, Holy Land Experience. Holy Land, excuse me. Yeah, that's right. Holy Land Experience. Oh, yeah. you call it the Holy Disneyland Experience. Right. Holy Disneyland Experience. The chapter for the, the chapter title for that one is Magic Kingdom Come. Yes. Um, it is. It is very much a Disney-esque uh, recreation of the Holy Land by a man named uh, the Reverend Marvin Rosenthal, uh, a man who grew up Jewish and converted to Christianity as a teenager and eventually went to Dallas Theological Seminary. I don't know if you're familiar with Dallas, but it has its own particular uh, uh, school of thought about end times um, and the rapture and so forth like that. And he, was, he came out of that school with a, a strong interest in end times theology and... Uh, uh, millennialism? Christian, yeah, millennialism and Christian Zionism. Um, very interested in those things and uh, created this Disney-esque uh, replication, replica of the Holy Land. It has a, uh, a scaled-down uh, Herod's Temple. It has uh, uh, some hills where Jesus does uh, sermons on the mount, and it has a Calvary and an empty tomb, and a tabernacle where they do live recreations of the uh, of, of the sacrifices, Yom Kippur sacrifice, for example. Um, it has a little village, uh, a, a market, a Jerusalem market. They have a cafe there where you can buy what they call the, the Golgotha burger. <laughs> well, thank God it's not St. John's head on a platter. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and, uh, and Hebrew national hot dogs. Um, <laughs> it's true. Uh, so... Um, so it's that kind of a place, $16 million project, 15 acres there in Orlando, very much in, in kind with, you know, uh, in terms of style and aesthetics with places like Disney World and Universal Studios, but really meant to be a kind of an alternative to those, especially these days when certain denominations have boycotted Disney World for its uh, progressive policies on uh, uh, partner benefits and so forth. Uh, I think Holy Land Experience has become an alternative attraction for some people like that. But in many other respects, and I don't think this really comes across to most of the people who visit the place, but in many respects, it's kind of a, it, it, the place is something of a front for uh, promoting Mr. Rosenthal's, Reverend Rosenthal's uh, own uh, fundamentalist Zionist Christian ideas. He, he uh, advocates a particular theory of the end times, uh, which is called Pre-Wrath Rapture. And, uh, and he has a magazine called Zion's Fire Magazine. It's, it's both religious and political with regard to Israel, as you might imagine. And this really... Um, is, is, is what drives the place in many ways. I found it difficult to connect with the Holy Land experience um, in a very sympathetic way. Um, it, was, it was much easier to do that at a place like Holy Land USA, which 
felt very much, uh, you know, more homespun, connected to the land, and really more of a work of an individual. It had fingerprints all over it. This was very slick and with very high production values, but also very ideological. Uh, I'm assuming that he's he's waiting for uh, uh, Israel to to become fully united. Yes, and Palestinians out. Yeah, you and, got it. Right, right. Yeah, and and um, you know he believes when we were talking, he he thinks that Christians are particularly interested in the tabernacle exhibit, which uh, shows, uh, which demonstrates this particular sacrificial rite, and he thinks that many uh, Christians who think along his lines are very interested in these rituals because, of course, once the uh, once Israel is reestablished and the temple is rebuilt, then the sacrificial rites of the, and then the priesthood will also be restored, and these sacrificial practices will be reinstated in the temple. I guess there's I, I heard somewhere that there's someone down in Texas trying to uh, breed a, a red heifer. Yeah, breed a red heifer yep. um, along those same lines with a certain apocalyptic expectation uh, with regard to that. Well, that sounds like it was a fun experience for you. <laughs> I went back um, just a few months ago, and uh, uh, again, couldn't get I, enough, huh? Excuse me. Yeah, couldn't, get, couldn't enough. get enough. Well, um, I was in Orlando for other for other things, and was talking with Mark Pinsky, who's the author of uh, uh, the, uh, he was, the Gospel According to the Simpsons, which he was on the show. Oh, was he mm-hmm. great? I, I really like him, and and he's been there many times. He covered the opening of Holy Land Experience, and he knows the people there. And so he wanted to take me down there and do an interview and a photo shoot um, at the place. And I had the same feeling on this second trip as I did on the first, which is that on the one hand, the people are so nice and hospitable and gracious, and, you know, they bought me a Golgotha burger. Um, <laughs> I didn't have to pay for it. And, and, and you know, they're, they're kind and they're, uh, you know, they're good people. And it creates a tension in me because, on the, uh, you know, there's that on the one hand and that, that kind of personal hospitality. Um, but then on the other hand, there is this, this overwhelming ideological orientation, which makes me very uncomfortable as someone who's concerned um, about the complexities of what's happening in Israel now and also very concerned about the history of anti-Semitism uh, and anti-Judaism in America. And when you look historically, you see that sometimes this fascination with Israel and Judaism is one side of of, of the coin, and and when things go awry, as they did, for example, with Martin Luther um, and other times in history, the uh, a, a more a, a fiercer um, anti-Semitic side can can emerge. So I'm suspicious of that kind of fascination. Well, you know, it's interesting. I was speaking to some people who are members of the Free Thought Association here in West Michigan recently, mm-hmm. and they told me that they. Uh, visited a number of different churches. Uh, they're making a, a film, mm-hmm. and they said that this one particular church was definitely the nicest, the most hospitable to them. Uh, just showered them with kindness. Mm. At the same time, not only do they hold public Harry Potter burnings, oh, wow. book burnings, they also hold Bible book burnings, where they burn Bibles that are not King James. 
Oh, okay. I thought it was going to be they burn books like mine that are written by biblical scholars. No, that no, they no. They don't no. approve. Oh, they'd probably burn <laughs> yours too. Yeah, yeah. You don't want to feel left out. But yeah, any any non King James version of the Bible they would also burn. And they said that they were absolutely the sweetest people. And I've mm-hmm. I've heard people uh, mm-hmm. uh, like uh, go undercover to clan rallies yeah. and find out how lovely the people are and they, they trade recipes with the mm-hmm. women and all this stuff. It, I know, it's, 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 it's fascinating. It's a very disturbing experience because you have certain expectations, right? And this just adds a whole layer of complexity to, to those kinds of dynamics. I think also, you know, it's just, it's very easy to, um, to stereotype people of, uh, of certain religious backgrounds. Um, um, it's easy for us liberals, let's say, to do that. And, uh, you know, when you're on the ground, you, you sometimes get a different feeling for, for them. Um, I, I have to say that, you know, I wasn't visiting places like what, you, what that group uh, visited, but... Um, you know, certainly most of the people behind the places I did visit were um, identified themselves with a kind of Christian faith that is not very much like my own, um, that I don't really identify with. But I, I did find the experiences of, of hospitality um, that I had and, and that we had as a family in the course of our travels did change the way I wanted to write about them and the way, you know, there, it created a certain sense of obligation or responsibility in that these people often opened up themselves and their stories in very vulnerable, disarming ways. And I felt, at least in some sense as a writer, that I felt a certain obligation to, to write about them and my experiences of these places you know, in kind, in some respect, in a more self-reflective, open, and vulnerable way. I tried to do that. That certainly was not what I thought I would be doing um, when I began writing this book. I but, you know, when you, when you travel, I think you're, there's a sense in which, you know, when we, when we travel, we are making ourselves strangers in strange lands, and we are... Uh, Good travel really depends on on hospitality. You know, I mean, we we're not always aware of it when we when we set out, and I think sometimes we steel ourselves against uh, being dependent on unknown others that we encounter along the way. But yet, when we look back on on our our fondest travel memories, they tend to come from these moments in which you know we were at our wits' end, and and some stranger who's now turned friend took us in and I think that in a way for me um, this in this project my my disciplinary tools as a scholar of religion were the means by which I was stealing myself against relationship but that in the course of the travels I I ended up finding myself um, you know accepting hospitality from those I was studying and entering into relationship with them and that did change um, the way I wrote about them I can understand that. Uh, you mentioned during a break that uh, you might be doing a book on um, dinosaur parks or, or creationism parks sometime in the future. Is that is that in the making? Or? Well, it's a thought. Oh, okay. Um, I, uh, I I love you know religious travel for lack of a better term, and uh, so an excuse to go back on the road um, and uh, and do another sort of 
part religious study, part travel narrative, I think would be would be great. And there are these uh, dinosaur museums um, uh, popping up around the country. There there are some that have been around for quite a while, but they're they tend to be uh, done by people who are advocating creationism, and they are intended to be educational as well as entertaining uh, sort of creationist attractions, dinosaur museums. I know there's one in, I I understand there's one in Michigan, Uh, I know there's one in Texas, and and some others as well. Um, That seems like it's ripe well if you if if uh, your travels bring it to michigan please please look us up hey thanks and uh if that if the book comes to fruition we'll we'll have you on again and have another fun conversation i would love that well uh tim it's uh, about that time i want to thank you so much uh for your contribution to the show today and That's last good. week uh if you're uh Interested in this subject, I'll tell you, you're not going to find a better book, Roadside Religion in Search of the Sacred, the Strange, and the Substance of Faith. The author is uh, Tim Beale, our guest today here on Common Threads. I'm Fred Stella. Please join us again next week here on WGVU. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads.